Well, we're continuing on in our series in First and Second Timothy, talking about the truth, and I'm super excited. We have a guest preacher here tonight, Adam Wynn, is going to come bring the word. Um, he's a professor at Mary Hardin Baylor, and I actually had the privilege of taking his New Testament class back in the day when I was there, and I remember that was the first time I was like, man, I could consider going to seminary. Um, just he inspired me to really think deeper about the word. And so it's a privilege to have you here tonight. All right. Good evening, Vespers. How are we doing tonight? How are we doing tonight? Oh, good, good, good. All right. I am excited to be here. I am also excited about what I get to talk about tonight. Um, I was asked to look at 1 Timothy. You've been working through 1 Timothy. So 1 Timothy, oh, wrong place. 1 Timothy chapter 2. And I'm excited about this because this is a passage that I'm pretty passionate about. And it is a text I'm pretty passionate about. And so I hope in spending time talking about it tonight that we can walk away with a better understanding of this text. Um, you know what? I'm not going to sit. <laughs> that's, that's all right. No, it works. I'm, I'm good. I can stand. Um, all right. And so let's just dive into this text. Uh, it is a text that's a challenging text. It's a text that is certainly understood differently by different people. Um, so I want to get into it. Do we have the text up there? Let's get the first part. There we go. This is what it says. First of all, then, I urge... Uh, that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men. Uh, wait, did I miss that? I think I just lost it. <laughs> I was reading. I'm going to read it here. Uh, 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 be made for everyone, for kings and all who are in high positions, so that they may lead a, so that we may lead quiet and peace, a peaceable life in all godliness and dignity. Now I want to stop right there. Okay? And talk about what Paul's trying to say here. Okay? He is asking the people uh, in Timothy's church, he's writing to, that they offer prayers and thanksgiving for everyone, and he includes kings and for people in high positions. All right? Now, why this is important is the people that he's asking them to pray for are probably people that don't appreciate Christians very much, right? Rulers, authorities over them at this time would not be looking favorably on the Christian church. And Paul is asking them to pray for those people and to make intercession for those people. And then he says, so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and dignity. And what Paul is really trying to say is, hey, don't make trouble for your rulers, even though they're not on God's side, Right? Even they're opposed to God. Don't make trouble for them. Don't be rebellious. Right? But be a good witness so that you can leave a, live a peaceable life and a godly life with dignity. He doesn't want them to be obnoxious. He does not want them to be bad witnesses. He does not want to draw negative attention to the, to the Christian faith because it already has a lot of negative attention. Right? And what his interest is here is really a missional interest. He wants them to be good witnesses of Christian faith so that people will see it and not be repelled by it. All right? So his interest is really a missional interest. 
be good witnesses. And he says, this is right and is acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Oh, keep going. We're good. Yeah. Okay, good. All right. Who desires everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. Again, this fits with what he's talking about. Why be a good witness? Why be somebody that prays for the kings and is not rebellious? Because we have a God who desires everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. So do your part. Don't be someone who's obnoxious. Don't be someone who's going to behave in a way that's going to turn people away from the faith. Right? For there is one God. There is also one mediator between God and humankind, Christ Jesus, himself human, who gave himself as a ransom for all. This was attested at the right time. For this I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of Gentiles in faith and truth. And so Paul is talking about his role as a witness as well. Now, my main focus is not going to be these first um, seven verses. But I want to talk about these first seven verses because I think they're really important for setting up the next verses where I want to spend most of my time. Okay? And these verses are all about be a good witness for the sake of mission. Right? For the sake of the Christian mission so you are not turning people away. Don't behave in a way that's going to push them away. And that same theme, I think, is an incredibly important theme in the next verses we're going to read. Okay? So let's go there and keep reading. He said, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands, without anger or argument. Also, that women should dress modestly and decently in suitable clothing, not with their hair braided or with gold, pearls, or expensive clothes, but with good works, as is proper for women who profess reverence for God. Let a woman learn in silence with full submission. I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She is to keep silent. Let's stop there. Okay? I don't see a lot of happy faces necessarily. <laughs> this is a challenging text. And it's interpreted in different ways. But, but, but I want to ask you something. I want to ask... How many of you go to or have gone to or are familiar with churches that strictly follow Paul's statement here on braided hair? How many go to a church that if you walk in, ladies, with braided hair, you are turned away at the door and they say, "Uh uh-uh, not today. No braided hair in this house because we follow scripture. No one? Yes, you go to the no braided hair church or know of it. Used to. Okay, okay. So it's out there. Okay, well, okay, let me ask you this. What about the church that is the no gold church? Anybody? Anybody go? Is the no braided hair church also a no gold church? Yes, okay, okay. A church that is consistently following scripture. All right? Paul said no gold. Good job. All right, what about no pearls? How many are familiar with that denomination that is adamant that women not wear pearls to be faithful to Scripture? No pearls? You know this. Okay. You know of it. Okay, you know of it. Okay, all right. I bet it's not a denomination we've all heard of. No, okay, good. Uh, And what about the no expensive clothing? Which one of you goes to a church where they check the tag at the door and be like, this Way too expensive for you to be wearing in here. No? Not even the, no? Not on that one. Okay, okay. 
We caught him on something. Okay. Why not? Listen, Paul, it, Paul says it pretty clearly, doesn't he? Paul says what? No braided hair. He says no gold. He says no pearls. He says no expensive clothing. He doesn't say sometimes. He says, don't do those things. Ladies, don't do those things. And guess what? We ignore him every single day of the year across the world. Why? Why do we do that? Why do we not listen to Paul on these things and do these things that Paul tells us we should do? Well, the answer to that question is because these things that Paul gives them instructions on were relevant in a way in Paul's culture in which they're just not relevant in our culture. Right? The braided hair and the gold and the pearls and the expensive clothing was signaling something to Paul's culture, negative to Paul's culture. It just doesn't signal that in our culture. Nothing wrong with braiding your hair. Anybody have their braided hair? It's good. Keep your hair braided. It's fine. It's totally fine. Right? Wearing gold, earrings, necklace, whatever. It's fine. Because we understand. And you know what? Churches don't fight over this. There are no major denominations that have divided over this. Because everyone, without even really thinking about it, just says, uh, yeah, yeah, that meant something in Paul's world that it doesn't mean in our world. And so we dismiss it. And that's normal and it's acceptable. And Christians don't really fight over that at all. Okay? Okay. So we're all on the same page there. We're okay. We're comfortable with, with not having to walk out of here restricting gold and, and pearls and we're good. Okay, good. We're all on the same page. How many are familiar with churches, denominations, that take very seriously the verses that follow that? Let a woman learn in silence with full submission. I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over man. She is to keep silent. Anybody familiar with any churches, denominations, or traditions who take that seriously? Have you ever heard of the Southern Baptists? That would be one of them. So you could raise your hand if you've heard of those. And Catholic Church, raise your hand if you heard. There's lots of them. Presbyterian uh, of America, raise your hand. There's lots of them. This, for 2,000 years, has been one of the primary texts that the church has used to restrict women from places of leadership and authority in the church. It is read as a universal teaching for all time and all places that says men lead in the church and women don't. But I wonder, just maybe, if the verses right before this are significantly culturally conditioned, meaning Paul says this because doing the things, wearing the gold and the braid and the pearls might be a negative witness in some way and hurt the church, is it at all possible, should we at least consider the possibility What Paul says in these verses could be culturally conditioned as well. I think we should at least think about it. If you are going to decide that this passage is a uh, universal teaching for all time and all places, you have to understand the magnitude of what you're deciding. You are deciding that half the population of the church should be marginalized, should not have a voice, should not be able to speak in the leadership of the church, and that is a major decision, and you shouldn't make it lightly. 
And if you could read this text in a way, a responsible way, that says maybe it's culturally conditioned, that should be paid attention to. Does that make sense? It's not a small issue. If you think it's a small issue, ask a woman who feels she's been called to ministry and been told she cannot because she's a woman. That is a painful and difficult place to be. I have not been there, obviously, but I've talked to many who have. And we need to take that seriously. And here's the other thing. This is not the totality of what Paul says on women in the church. This isn't the only verse that's out there regarding women in the church. And so, I think we might be, I might have messed up my slides a little bit, but can we jump ahead to Romans chapter 16, verse 1? Can we put that up there? There we go. All right. This is Paul saying to the church in Rome, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant. I don't like that translation very much. I think it's cheating a little bit. The actual word in Greek would be deacon who is a deacon in the church, which according to Paul is an office of leadership in the church. Phoebe is a woman in the church in Sincrea who is a deacon in that church and has a position of authority and leadership. And Paul's commending her. Go to the very next one. Give me the next one, uh, 16.2. That you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and that you help her in whatever matter uh, she may have need of. For, her, she, uh, for she herself has also been a helper of many, and of myself as well. This is a woman that Paul has sent to them. Guess what he has sent with her? He sent with her the letter of Romans. He sent it with her. And guess who's probably meant to give it to them and read it to them? Phoebe, the deacon of the church of Sincrea. She's a leader and she's going to read this letter to them. And not only that, anybody ever read Romans before? Anyone ever read Romans? Okay, okay. Was it simple and easy to understand? That is a hard letter to understand. And guess what? People who read it the first time probably had some questions. Who do you think Paul expected to answer their questions? Phoebe, a leader in the church of Sincrea who was not silent, who did not learn in full submission, but would have read and answered questions about what we regard as sacred scripture. Give me the next one. Give me the next one. It's uh, Romans 16, 7. Paul, just six verses later, says, Greet Andronicus and Junius, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, who are outstanding among the apostles who are also in Christ before me. And give me the next line. Uh, Oh, no, never mind. Go back, go back. Sorry, sorry. I thought there was more. Okay. Paul is talking about a husband and wife, Andronicus and Junius. Junius is a woman. And what does Paul say or say she is? She is outstanding among the apostles. Now, that doesn't mean she's one of the 12. Because there were apostles, there were 12. But the other apostles seem to have appointed other apostles to have authority to represent Jesus, to plant churches, and that would involve teaching and having authority in the church. That seems pretty inconsistent with what we just were reading in 1 Timothy 2.11. This is a female apostle. And Paul says there's no higher office in the church. And she holds it. Give me the next one. If we can. I urge you, Odia, and I urge Syntyche uh, to live in harmony in the Lord. Next. 
Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement and also the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Here Paul's mentioning two women who are his co-workers and asking people to help them get along. Now, some people like to think these are just two ladies in the church who have a fight. Paul is not taking time out of his letter to mention two women who have a fight. These are two women who what? They are leading in the church and the people who are following them are at odds with one another because they're at odds with one another. And Paul's calling them to unity. This doesn't seem consistent with women who what? Learn in silence and full submission, right? They're leading. Give me the next one. This is 1 Corinthians 11, 5 says, But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. She is one and the same as a woman whose head is shaved. Now, you might think, what is that? That's weird. It is weird. And that passage is really weird. But what's really interesting in that passage is Paul is saying that women can pray and prophesy in the church. I'm pretty sure to pray and prophesy in the church, you have to open your mouth and speak. And prophesying is speaking a word from God to the people. It's a lot like preaching. It's a lot like teaching. And Paul says they can do it. Give me the next one. Paul says, for all, this is Galatians 3, 27. It'll be 28 as well. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed themselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Here, Paul is making a very profound statement. What's interesting, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'll share this with you now. Jewish men, Jewish men prayed regularly. God, thank you that you did not make me a Gentile. God, thank you that you did not make me a slave. And God, thank you that you did not make me a woman. That's pretty harsh. I'm going to talk about why that's more important later. But do you see what Paul's doing here? Paul is saying once baptized into Christ, male, female, slave, free, Jew, Gentile distinctions before God are eradicated. The prayer that is saying one is better than the other is eradicated, right? He is removing the difference. And in the church, we had slaves who would teach their masters. And we had Gentiles who would teach Jews. And I dare say we had women who would teach men because of the thing Paul is teaching here. So how do we then deal with this text? We have tension in Paul. If you haven't seen that tension clearly there, it's there. There's tension in Paul himself. So what do we do with that? What do we do with Paul saying here, let a woman learn in silence with full submission? Well, a really good principle for interpreting or reading any letter in the New Testament, is you're always reading one side of a conversation. Always, right? Always reading one side of a conversation. And so you always have to kind of reconstruct the other side of the conversation. What's going on on the other side of that conversation? What are they talking about? And I'd say the fact that Paul even talks about this suggests that Timothy has asked the question, and somewhere in the church women are teaching. And Timothy's saying, Paul, what do we do about it? What, what, what do you say about that? It's happening And I want to try and reconstruct the other side of the conversation in a way that might indicate that we are dealing with an instruction that's culturally conditioned. That's culturally conditioned and related to this overall concern we've seen of Paul's concern for being a good witness and mission in the church. 
All right? So now, ladies, I apologize. I'm going to share some ideas that are not my ideas, but they're ideas that were prevalent in the ancient Jewish and Roman and Greek world. And they're pretty negative related to women. They believed that women were less rational and less intelligent than men. Right? This was a pretty much axiomatic belief across the, the, the world. Most men believed this. Didn't help that they never educated them or gave them an opportunity to learn. Okay? Aristotle, one of the most famous philosophers in the ancient world, believed that be, to be born a woman is to be born with a birth defect. Right? That the male form was a complete form and women were less than. This was the belief of the day. Jewish men believed that women were the ultimate cause of sin. They go back to the Adam and Eve story for this, right? And they believed that women, when it came to um, things like adultery or sexual promiscuity or between, uh, affairs, that kind of thing, they blamed the woman. And I already told you, what did they do? They prayed every day, thank you, God, that you did not make me a woman. Jewish men would not study Torah with women. They would not teach Torah to women, right? Unless it was a husband teaching a wife, but it, that's, how, that's it. They had very negative views. And so in light of that, I want, to, I want you to put yourself in a situation with me. Imagine with me you are a Jewish man. A Jewish man living in, I don't know, uh, Timothy's in Ephesus. Let's say you're living in Ephesus. Jewish man living in Ephesus. And you have a cousin who has fallen into this new movement, right, called the way. And it believes that a peasant from Galilee happened to be God's Messiah and that he was crucified, but he rose again. And he believes that this Messiah has changed the world and the people are now following this Messiah and that the Spirit of God can now dwell in people because of this and it, and, and everything's changed and he is following him. And you've noticed he seems pretty radically different and you're impressed by what's going on in his life. His life seems transformed. And he's asked you to come to one of his gatherings. He says, we meet, we meet on Sundays. Would you be willing to come on a Sunday evening and gather with us and say, you, man, you're reluctant, you're not sure, but you decide to finally go. And you go and you show up. And you show up and the first thing people do is they eat together. And what you notice is in this group, there are people of every social class and they are eating with each other and slaves are eating with wealthy people and wealthy people are eating with poor people and it's all intermixed. It's kind of a beautiful thing. It's kind of strange for your culture. And they're sharing and people brought their food and wealthy people brought their good food and poor people brought their not so good food and everybody's sharing it. And it's kind of odd, but it's kind of exciting and neat and loving this and then they begin to sing songs after they eat right and these songs are pretty beautiful and they're drawing in old testament scriptures that you know and they're connecting them to this jesus and it's really powerful and it's really meaningful and then they say it's a time for teaching and instruction and a woman stands up and she begins to open the torah and read it to you now remember, you're a Jewish man and you think all the things about women that I just told you. How are you going to receive that? Are you going to receive that well? Are you going to be open to it as a Jewish man who prays every day, thank you God that you did not make me a Gentile, a slave, and a woman? 
Are you going to sit and listen to something you've never listened to before? A woman talk to you about the God of Israel and Jewish scriptures? I would suggest that you would not. And I would suggest at that moment, a night that was really moving and powerful would come to an abrupt end for you, end for you and you'd be frustrated and you'd be angry and you wouldn't want anything to do with that movement because you're a product of that culture. Does that make sense? That's a very real reality that Paul and every early Christian, even the ones that believed in Christ, there's no male and female, had to negotiate when it came to doing church in a world with a bunch of people who didn't think that way. Does that make sense? And when you go home and people ask, what was it like meeting with your cousin's group? What are you going to say? You're going to say, it was amazing. No. You're going to tell them those people, they ignore our traditions. What they do is offensive. And then they're going to tell other people. And how is that going to work for the church that's trying to be a good witness in the world? Does that make sense? And so what I am suggesting here is Paul might not be offering a universal teaching for all time and all places. But he might be trying to navigate a really complicated situation. Where he believes in Christ, we are new creation, and there is this equality, but at the same time, how are you going to be missionaries to a world that doesn't see it the same way as you see it? And so there are times when you give women these positions of authority that Paul gives many times, but maybe there's other times where you have some restrictions. Not because you believe the restrictions are God's truth. But you believe the restrictions might be necessary so people will listen and hear. It's not too different than missionaries today. When we go to strange cultures, different cultures, if you go to a culture, a culture that is maybe uh, um, very traditional Islamic culture, the first thing we do is send women to their, the male leadership of that culture. No, because if you did, you wouldn't get anywhere. But do we hope ultimately there'll be transformation and views of women will change? Yes, of course we do. So what I'm trying to suggest here is Paul is dealing with something complicated and difficult. And what we're reading here might be culturally conditioned. Does that make sense? Now I have to tackle one more tricky and challenging text. Okay? I think we're, it's a... Uh, 1 Timothy 2.13, so we get that up there. There we go. Right after Paul says, I permit no woman to teach or have authority over man, she's to keep silent. Paul says, for Adam was formed first and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. She will be saved through childbearing, provided they continue in faith, love, holiness, with modesty. Now, for those who would read this text as a universal teaching for all time and all place, different than the way I am suggesting it be read, they would point to this passage and say, hey, Paul is grounding this text in the story of Adam and Eve. And that story is, that, their setting is very different than Paul's. And they'd say that means it's not culturally conditioned. It's grounded in the creation account. That's an argument that has to be considered. But one thing I want to point out about this text is, though they might say this is grounded in the Adam and Eve account, and because this is the cause of Paul's argument, they have a hard time explaining how it's the cause of Paul's argument. Adam was formed first. Hmm. So does that mean Adam has authority, for men have authority over women for the rest of the time? Who was formed first, fish or people? If you know the story, 
cows or people. Yeah, there's nothing about being formed first that necessarily demands someone has authority, even in the story Paul's quoting, right? So that doesn't necessarily make it a, a good argument, and that might not be what Paul's trying to say. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived. So are we saying because Eve was deceived one time, and by the way, the story tells us Adam was right there with her and he ate the fruit too, we're trying to say that that just means forever, for all time, that means women. Is that Paul's argument? Is that what he's trying to say? I think that's a hard argument to make. And then there's this also weird thing. Yet she will be saved through childbearing. Saved through having babies? That's weird. So what I want to say is regardless if you are on the more traditional side and read this as an all time, a, a, a teaching for all time in all places, it's hard to understand what Paul is trying to say with those verses and how it actually supports this as a universal teaching. And I think there's actually a cultural way of explaining that passage pretty well. And so now I need my next slide. What do we got up there? Okay. I want to introduce you to some cultural realities. I want to introduce you to the cult of Artemis in Ephesus particularly, but also in the Roman world. Artemis was the female goddess of fertility and childbirth, right? Right? Uh, go, go back again. Go back. I'm not, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Um, and people believed that if you honored Artemis, Artemis would make you fertile, let you have lots of babies, and then protect you while you had those babies. And this was a big deal because women died in childbirth all the time. And they wanted to protect themselves. And so if you gave Artemis enough sacrifice and gave enough prayer, then Artemis would watch over you. And this was a very strong belief in the ancient world. All right, move down. Thank you. All right. Artemis myth. The Artemis myth believed that Artemis was born to the god Zeus, and she had a twin brother named Apollo. But she came first, and thus she had priority over Apollo. Okay? Following the myth? All right. Give me the next one. And here's something we know already existed in the Jewish world that oftentimes Jews would take or understand a Greek mythological story about a a Greek goddess and replace it with Eve, right? They'd say Isis, the god Isis, goddess Isis. Well, she's, Eve's really a representative of this goddess who is also connected to fertility. Or Artemis is really just a personification of Eve, this mother of all who protects. And so Jews already were blending these things and replacing these Greek goddesses with this Jewish Eve. Does that make sense? And so what I would like to suggest to you is we know false teaching is a problem in 1 Timothy. I hadn't talked about that yet, but it is. And I'd suggest it's very possible we have a false teaching that's going on that is drawing on this Jewish Eve replacement of goddesses and if you were a pagan let's say you were a pagan who converted to christianity and you'd worshiped artemis your whole life and then you start following jesus right you think when your wife got pregnant you might just get a little bit nervous is jesus going to be able to protect her like artemis could protect her and you get a little anxious and then somebody starts to say well don't worry our christian faith has something like that we have eve 
And they start exalting Eve and they start exaggerating Eve and Eve can protect you, right? Through childbearing and through childbirth. And you could get these types of teachings that start evolving where, just like Jews, Eve replaces the goddess. And who might be prioritized in the Adam and Eve relationship then? Eve over Adam, right? And you might say, and that can save you in childbearing. Now, in light of a false teaching like that, in light of a false teaching like that, let me read this, what he says again. If that sort of false teaching is being promoted and maybe promoted by certain women, oh, and by the way, can I tell you what the priestesses of Artemis wore? Braided hair, gold, pearls, expensive clothing. Maybe Paul doesn't want people in the church looking like and promoting something connected to something that is pagan. It will mislead the people. And then he says, for Adam was formed first. You're messing up the story, people. And then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived. Stop prioritizing. Stop saying Eve better than. You're messing up the story. And then he says, yet she, the woman, will be saved. Not saved from her sins, but what? Protected in childbearing. Jesus will protect her. You don't got to go to Artemis. You don't got to go to Eve standing in the place of Artemis. Provided they continue in faith and love and holiness with modesty. And I think that makes a lot of sense in the cultural context of that verse as well. And so what I would say to you is I think there are a lot of cultural factors we're not aware of that might help us understand this text very differently. And if that door is open to us, I think we should take it seriously. And if I'm right, let me, if I'm right, if I'm right, this is culturally conditioned and Paul f- empowered women like Junia and Phoebe and Iodians and Tychian, etc., 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 Let's look at the 21st century. Let's look at the 21st century. Today. If Paul has created this instruction about limiting women in teaching in his time and his place for the sake of a better witness to the world around you so more people can come to know Jesus. What if we applied the exact same rule today in our culture right now? What impact would that have on our witness to the world around us? Is that a rule saying, no, women can't teach, you have authority of the church, only men? Is that going to draw more people to the church? Is that going to be a witness? People say, yeah, that's the place I want to be. A place that keeps women silent and doesn't allow them to have a voice, have authority. I would say, I don't think so. We're happy to say women can be CEOs of companies, women can be heads of state, women can be high-powered lawyers, women can... And then the church would say something like, yeah, but not here, only men. I think that actually would start to work against the very principle that I think Paul created the rule for in the first place. Culture has changed so much that we'd be foolish to hold on to the rule. It would be counterproductive to the work of the gospel. And so I read this text that has certainly been controversial and say, I think it makes so much sense. It's culturally good. And I think the other passages we looked at really show us the perspective of what Paul thinks women should be doing and allows women to do. And I think we need to embody that. I think it is absolutely wonderful that Sydney leads you all and teaches you all because I think God has called her and gifted her for doing that. 
And I can tell you so many women in my life that have taught me and, 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 and taught me in seminary and preached to me, and I've learned from them, and I believe God called them, and I don't believe this passage in any way restricts them. And so with that in mind, I want you to talk about some things. We have some questions. There we go. All right, one question. How do you, and you're going to talk amongst yourselves at the table. How do you feel about aspects of the Bible being conditioned by cultural realities? Remember that some of you are wearing gold right now as you answer that question, right? And what does, uh, what questions does this raise for you? So start there. And we'll have more questions that come up as we go, I think. Is that right? Is that good? We're going to throw them up there? Okay, here we'll go throw up more of them. Here we go. What is your previous experience with this text? How has it been taught? How have you understood it? How has it been, how has it, has it been heard or, or received? All right? And where are we at? There we go. And in what ways has Scripture played a role in these experiences? And Oh, wait. No, I missed it. No, no, no. Okay. Oh, yeah. What has been your previous experience with women in leadership roles in the church, such as pastors and elders? And in what way has Scripture played a role in your understanding of them? So talk about those things. We'll talk about them for a little while. And then we'll have time, ask some questions, process together. Go. Talk among yourselves. All right. Yeah, okay. So uh, if... If there are any questions, you've been processing this at your table. If at your table questions have come up, uh, I'd love to field questions and hear what you're thinking. And if there's anything you want to ask, feel free. Um, I love this. I do it all the time. So, Anyone? To any questions? To any? I mean... (laughs) Yeah, asking questions. Yeah, asking questions. Yeah, yeah. Do you have a question to ask? You have any questions of follow-up? For yeah, follow-up. Question. All right. So we were kind of talking about when it comes to other pieces of Scripture being culturally conditioned. Yeah. How can we discern that or like do yeah, you have other great. pieces of Scripture that you would suggest maybe? Yeah, I think there's a lot of things that are, um, and I think that's normal. Um, but I think it's also somebody says, yeah, there's a lot of things that are like like there's a, there's a passage where Paul talked. We, we read a, a, a little piece of it from First Corinthians where Paul's talking about women praying with their heads covered. Um, I, that's that's a text that almost everyone recognizes culturally conditioned, right? It communicated something uh, that it doesn't communicate today, and so you know. Uh, Good ladies, you're not have, you don't have your heads covered. That's fine. It's not, not a big deal, right? Um, I think I think that you ask a great question, and I think a lot of people sometimes are really careless with cultural con- that issue of culturally conditioned, right? And we'll say, well, that's culturally conditioned, so maybe this too. And I think it's really important that we take each issue separately, right? And have to think about each one separately. Um, I don't have this here, but if anybody ever wanted to, my email address, awinumhb.edu, I have, a, I have a document that I've created that gives kind of principles for, for evaluating whether something's culturally conditioned, an objective set of principles where you think very carefully about something and say, does it, does it, does it fit this? Does it fit this? Does it fit this? And you can make those kind of decisions. But I think it needs to be done carefully. Um, there's two extremes that are bad when it comes to 
issues of culture being culturally conditioned. One extreme is we just deem nothing as culturally conditioned. And then essentially all we're doing is kind of deifying the first century culture, right? They covered their heads. Well, we should cover our heads. Uh, they, they gave each other a holy kiss. Well, we should give each other a holy kiss. Right? And, and, and if we started doing everything that they did, it would make no sense in our culture. Does that make sense? And so that's a problem. You want to avoid that problem. The other problem is, uh, this is scripture, and is it possible somebody who doesn't like something in the text could just say, that's culturally conditioned? And just to get rid of it? Yeah, that's a problem too. And so you, wanna, you don't want to do it carelessly, and you don't want to do it without, without being very thoughtful and have some really good reasons for why you're doing it. So you want to avoid both of those extremes. Um, you you got to do it somehow. But uh, yeah, it's a great question, and what I would say is... Um, if you, if you have more information, you know, you can contact me and I'd love to give you more information about how to make those decisions. Yeah. Yes. Question. Can you spell out your emails? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can, I can, I can. Uh, a uh, yes. W I N N at UMHB dot edu. How many will I have when I get home tonight? <laughs> At least two. Okay, okay, yeah, okay, okay, okay. yeah. No, that's fine, that's fine. Email, don't worry, don't, don't worry about it. Uh, yeah, any other questions? Question? I got you. Next. Okay, so, like, how do we as Christians handle, um, like, non believers who use, like, these specific verses to say that there's, like, contradictions in the Bible? And, like, use that as an excuse yeah. that, like, God isn't real and yeah. God is false. Yeah, great question. Um, I, I mean, I think doing the type of thing we did tonight, you know, I mean, um, being able to say, yeah, these, there are texts that seem like they stand in tension, right? <laughs> so let's say there are. There are texts that sound like they stand in tension, um, like the ones we talked about tonight. Paul, Paul seems to limit women in this passage and then seems to affirm, uh, let them do things in other passages. And, and so I think we need to uh, recognize and say, hey, um, recognize it, be honest about it, don't deny it, that doesn't help anything, and then, and then try and find, find good answers. I mean, like what was offered tonight I think is a good answer to that question. Um, and say, you know, this passage could very well be related to Paul trying to navigate his culture um, for the sake of, you know, enhancing the witness of the church and those sorts of things. I mean, that's the kind of thing you want to be doing. Um, there's other things, hey, I mean, the, vista, the, the services we've been doing on Sunday, for those who have been here, is all about living with tension. And sometimes there's just tensions you can't resolve. And you've got to be honest about them, right? I mean, there's tensions there and there's struggles there. Uh, and sometimes there's things that we wish we could resolve. And, you know, uh, it, if answering every, every tension or messy part of the Bible is what it's going to take to get somebody to faith, well, you're probably not ever going to get there. And it's going to take God doing a work in somebody's life more than being able to give them all the right answers. Being able to have answers is good. Being able to think through complicated things is good. And this is an example of that. And again, you have my email address. So if there's something you're raising, you're like, ask, ask people. And ask, ask Sydney and ask people to have resources to be able to help you process some of those things to, 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 to give answers. Um, but you might not be able to answer all of everybody's questions, right? Is that helpful?